Let's commit the evening to the Lord and ask God to give us wonderful revelations, even tonight. Praise you, Lord. Father, I'm so grateful to you for your wonderful grace to us. And we thank you for the wonderful grace you've poured upon us even this day. Grace which is sufficient for us. And we want to say how much we appreciate your grace. Oh, Father, I just wonder how the worldlings manage, the people of the world, how they manage without you. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for the wonderful fruit of the Spirit that is within us. Thank you for the wonderful joy that you give us and the peace that is beyond anything we understand. Father, I would ask in the name of Jesus tonight that you will help us, Father, study this subject of fasting. And I ask, Father, you will give us revelations that will be helpful, that will be down to earth, and yet which will fully represent what your word says on this glorious subject. Father, just come, and I, I pray that you will be the teacher tonight, leading us into all truth, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Now, I hope you remember that at this particular stage of the BBS course, and we're approaching the end very rapidly, we're dealing with what I call spiritual exercises. And I hope for the last few sessions you've taken in the exercises that I've been talking about in those sessions, and not just taken them in, that you've actually been applying them. May I remind you of the word in James be you doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And it is important with all of these exercises that we don't just learn about these things and then put them on the shelf, but we actually learn to apply these things day by day by day by day as we go on. Tonight, we're speaking about another spiritual exercise, and actually this is the last that I have time to actually cover. We're, we're talking tonight on the subject of fasting, fasting. All right, not feasting, fasting. And we're going to see what the Bible has to say on this wonderful subject. Can I say immediately that it is important that we try and get the balance that the Bible gives and that we don't follow a man's scheme on this wonderful topic. The Bible says plenty on fasting and it gets the balance just right. The reason I have to emphasize that is this. Most of us have two parts to our nature. I don't know whether you've noticed this. We've got, first of all, a very lazy part to our nature. In other words, we like to do our own thing and we like to indulge ourselves a great deal. On the other hand, however, we've also got a religious part to our nature, and that's the bit that wants us to do all sorts of things to win brownie points for God, you see, that will impress God, that will show him just how sold out we are to him and also impress others around. It's the sort of thing, you know, that uh, applies when you might take medicine, and generally we feel that medicine that tastes bad is good for you. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, those who go for liquor fruta, which is the most revolting stuff I've ever tasted, they generally feel better after they've done it. And that's a religious side of our nature. And this comes out in fasting, perhaps more than any other subject. Because, you see, there are two main camps over fasting. One, the lazy camp, who say, well, I hope the teaching is going to let us off so that we don't have to fast at all, because we don't want to fast, do we? I mean, it's alien to most of our natures. Uh, the body cries out. It says, feed me when I'm hungry. Give me comfort when I need it. Let me put my feet up and relax. And that actually comes along to fasting and says, oh, I jolly well hope that it's not going to be too pointed. 
On the other hand, the religious side of us says, well, if this is challenging, then we will do it. And there are some people around, you know, who think that fasting is something that's absolutely essential. Everyone should do it often. And some people have this nature within them that, in fact, I'm married to a person who does this, who tends to overfast, right? And the problem I have with my wife, and let me be quite honest about this, is that very often during the week she says, oh, Roger, I think I should fast tomorrow. And I think I should fast. Well, she'd fast all week if she had her. And I actually have to say, now, darling, could you check it again with the Lord? You know? And there are people like that. You know, they want to do fasting. They think it's a, an important exercise. But sometimes it's the religious part of their nature that causes them to do it. What we've got to do is get the balance. And, and if you're in, on one side of that or the other, it's important to apply the Bible to it to see what the Bible has to say. And what we're going to do is look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and try and get the balance where it ought to be placed. All right, so let's begin our review, shall we, in the Old Testament. And I wonder whether I could surprise most of you by telling you this, that God's law actually insisted on only one fast a year. Now, that's a surprise to most people who've read their Bibles, but in fact, the only statutory obligation was that the people of Israel should fast once a year. And we find that instruction in the book of Leviticus. Now, all the people who have the tendency to self-indulgence are smiling at this point. We find this in Leviticus and chapter 23. Let's have a look at this. Leviticus 23... And I'm going to read verse 26 to about verse 29. All right, let me just read it. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls. Now, do you notice that little phrase, afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, and ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God, and whatsoever soul it shall be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. This little phrase found in verse 27, ye shall afflict your souls, is a phrase which means to fast. And we'll see that in one or two scriptures a little later on. On this day, the Day of Atonement, the famous Feast of Atonement, the people had to fast. This, of course, compares with the Feast of Tabernacles, which followed it, where the people had to feast and had to rejoice. And there were these two days, one where you had to feast and everyone had to rejoice. You weren't allowed to be sad, right, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. On this day, however, you had to afflict your soul and you had to fast. And fast meant no food on that particular day. Now, that was the only instruction given in the law of God concerning fasting. That wasn't, however, the only time that the people in the Old Testament fasted. There were other occasions when they voluntarily fasted. In other words, they felt they should and they wanted to, and so they did. And generally speaking, you can see certain categories of things that led them to fast. For example, if they felt they wanted to humble themselves before God, or felt they needed to repent, or they felt that in some way God was going to draw near and they had to prepare themselves for that, then they would fast. But usually it was a voluntary feeling. 
a feeling of expectation, you know, a feeling that God was going to do something wonderful, and so they decided to fast. But it wasn't statutory or mandatory in any way. Uh, let me show you one of those. In 1 Samuel 7, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 7, we see one of these uh, occasions. And here there's repentance going on. And in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 7, we see a time when the people decided they wanted to fast. 1 Samuel 7, 3, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balim and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. All right, now there was a time they fasted because they wanted to draw closer to God. You'll notice, by the way, when Jonah preached to the Ninevites, they decided to fast. Jonah didn't go in and say fast. They decided that they wanted to fast. So that was the first occasion. The second sort of category was this. If they felt they needed specific guidance from God, or they wanted God to intervene for them in a particular way, then they might decide to fast. And it was voluntary. I'll give you two examples of this. I love the second of these, I must say. The first is in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1 to 3. And in verse 1, you see why here they wanted to fast. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon, Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. And they gathered to seek the Lord. Now there they want God to intervene, so they fast on that particular day. Another example, this is the one I love, is in the book that follows, the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 8, oh, and how I love Ezra's heart in this particular passage. I suspect you know this passage quite well. He'd given a testimony of God. And now God had to meet him in that testimony. And he was nervous in case God wouldn't meet him. I've done this many times, I have to say. In Ezra 8, 21, and this is what Ezra said, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves, do you see that phrase? Before our God, to seek of him a right way for us, and for our little ones, and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated 
of us. He told the king the Lord would look after them, and now the Lord had to look after them, and they were nervous. So they decided to actually fast on that particular day. Sometimes the death of an individual would cause people to fast. I think that's quite normal in our day, isn't it? If you've uh, lost a loved one, you really don't feel like eating at all. And here they used to have a, a fast very often when someone they loved really had uh, died, you see. For example, when Saul died, the people of Jabesh Gilead decided to have a seven-day fast, and they did. They fasted for the whole time that, um, uh, you know, for the whole week that they put aside because they so loved Saul and they were really touched, you know, by what had happened to him. They were really moved by it. And so they proclaimed a fast. A fourth reason would be revelation. Say a person wanted revelation in the Old Testament, often they would fast before the Lord. All right? There are other categories as well, but I wanted just to say these are the four main categories as far as I can see it. I think we'll see the last one in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3. And note it carefully because I won't be back to it, but I will quote it again. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, here Daniel's receiving wonderful revelations from the Lord. I mean, thrilling revelations. And he wants more. And God's promised him more. And so he fasts. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three, four weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, Neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till whole three weeks were fulfilled. All right? And here the excitement, the awe of God caused him to actually fast. All right, now, can you see the point that I'm making? There was one statutory fast, the others were voluntary. Unfortunately, however, the Jews had a very strong religious streak, and of course the Jews didn't like this. They wanted something more religious. They wanted something that imposed more upon them. And the funny thing is that having begun in this simplicity, before long the Jews came along and they started appointing loads and loads and loads of fast days, right? And they wanted to fast for this and fast for that. And they couldn't do it individually. They wanted the whole nation to do it. They had so many. It was absolutely amazing. I'll give you an example. Um, after the defeat of uh, Jerusalem and after the, the uh, fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, the people thought, we'll always remember the fall of Jerusalem. It happened in four distinct stages in over a year, you know, over the period of a year. So we proclaim a fast on this day, this day, this day, and this day. And four fasts were proclaimed. And every one of the Jews had to keep these four days fasting to remember the fall of Jerusalem. Now, God wasn't in it. He didn't want it. But their religious nature caused them to do it. That's why, incidentally, in Zechariah, they actually asked God, you know, and they say, well, God, are these four fast days of you? And God says something that doesn't suit the religious man. He says, no, they're not of me. And he says it beautifully as well. In Zechariah 8, verse 19, and when we come on to a verse-by-verse -verse study of Zechariah later on this year, um, I'll be telling exactly what happened on these particular four days. Zechariah 8, verse 19 or verse 18, And the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, 
and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. In other words, I don't want you to fast on these days. Forget those fasts, they're not of me. Now, the religious side of man doesn't accept that. We don't know whether the Jews actually stopped fasting at this time, you know, on those dates. I bet they carried on. But certainly by the time of Jesus, it was statutory if you were a, a really religious holy person to fast at least twice a week. Isn't that amazing? I mean, having begun with one fast a year, they ended at the time of Jesus with every Pharisee expected to fast at least twice a week. And indeed, they used to go around boasting. Do you remember in Luke 18, the man who stands up and says, thank the Lord, I'm not like other men. Do you remember him? One of his boasts is this. In Luke 18, look, Jesus is telling uh, this story. In verse 10, we'll begin. Luke 18 and verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week. See that? Very proud of that. I fast twice every single week, and I'm to impress God. There we are, building up these brownie points, as I call them, with God. Might get some badges on his arm if he gets enough points with God. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. There we are, good spiritual thing. We've got Pharisees around in our day and age. Some people think that if our fellowships fasted twice a week, we'd really be making progress. It's the same thing, you know, and we'll have a look at this pharisaical attitude a little later on. God hated it. God loved people who fasted with the right motive, like Anna. Do you remember Anna, who was in the temple and the baby Jesus was brought in? It says she was a widow, and she served the Lord with fasting and with prayer. Do you remember that? Now, he loved her. But this was religious stuff. And God deliver us, please, from any religious attitude over this. God loved true fasting. He hated the religious stuff. All right? Right, to end this review of the Old Testament, can we just go to the chapter, therefore, in which he talks about the two different sorts of fasting, the religious as opposed to the real. In Isaiah 58, you have a chapter in which God reveals his thoughts about fasting. And then we'll get on to the New Testament, which is even more surprising than this. Isaiah 58 now, in verse 3, the people are most disappointed with God. I mean, they've been doing all this religious activity, and God doesn't seem to be impressed. They haven't got any badges on their arm, you know, to sew onto their uniforms, and they're quite frankly depressed about this matter. So they ask God about it. Verse 3, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure and exact all your labours. Do you see what God says? When you fast, you're actually doing something for you, not for me. It suits you down to the ground to carry on in this religious type of way and fulfills, uh, you know, a certain religious side to your nature. It's not of faith and it certainly isn't of me. Verse 4, Behold, you fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness, 
to get your own way. That's literally what he means. So that you might puff yourself up and say, oh, I'm much more holy than they are. And it's all de debate, you know, all strife with one another that, it's, that, that is at the root of it. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. You don't twist God's arm like that. That's not the way of it. And then he says, this is the real fast that I wanted from you and I didn't get it. Look, he says, verse 5, is it such a fast that I have chosen? And then he describes the sort of fast and he gives three reasons for fasting here. Was it, he said, when you fasted a day for a man to afflict his soul? Was it a day to bow down his head as a bulrush, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? In other words, was it done out of humility before me, or was it not? Was it done out of pride and religiosity? And the truth was, they did it out of religiosity. He says, if you'd done it in true humility, I could have accepted it. You didn't. Secondly, verse 6, is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. There's a good reason for fasting. There's oppression. There's bondage around. Did you fast to actually release this bondage? The answer was no, they didn't. They fasted because they wanted more bondage put on the people. You see? It wasn't pure. The motive was wrong. Verse 7, another good reason for fasting. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? In other words, in a time of economic recession in a nation, when things are, are, are severe, have you thought of sharing your food? You know, so that you eat only half and give the other half to someone else? You hadn't done that. You were bolstering up your own corner all the time. And that's why I could not accept it. That's religiosity in fasting. True of the church in many areas today, I have to say. Verse 8, he then says, if you will get it right, these are the results. If you start doing it in purity before me. If you do, then shall thy light break forth as the morning, thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Then thou shalt call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. All this fasting, and yet you're not doing the very thing you should be doing. You're causing people to be in bondage, pointing the finger, criticizing, gossiping, and all the other things. Put those away. He says, have a fast from your religiosity, he says. Then perhaps I'll listen to your fast and speaking vanity. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. The Lord shall guide thee continually, satisfy thy soul in drought, make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And so it goes on. All right? Now that is a critical passage of Israel, what they were doing. So there's the Old Testament right? One day a year and voluntary fasting, and there's the religious side of men then saying, oh, we've got to do this much more often, and God condemning it. All right, what about the New Testament now? If we swing through to the New Testament, what's the emphasis that we get there? Well, first of all, we have to say that the Day of Atonement's been fulfilled. 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. His soul was afflicted that yours might be full and not afflicted anymore. So the one statutory arrangement is now toppled. You don't have a statutory arrangement like that. Ah, yeah, but surely there's teaching on fasting. Yes, there is, but you know, it's not majored on in any way in the New Testament. It's very interesting, this, you see. Do you know, if you read the book of Acts, there is no reference at all to the whole church fasting in Acts. The leaders just didn't stand up and say to the whole church, come on, everybody, we're going to have a fast. There's no reference to a regular fast day at all. And in the New Testament epistles of Paul, he doesn't say anywhere, oh, you ought to fast regularly. Isn't that odd? Even in passages which deal with self-denial, Paul doesn't mention fasting at all. It's worse than that, actually. If you look at the history of the first century church, there's no mention of fasting among them either. As far as we know, the first century church never fasted. Not as a whole, anyway. And if you look at church history, you find something else very fascinating. You find tremendous men of faith and of prayer who never fasted. Do you know George Muller never fasted? Now that man in Bristol, right, he moved heaven and earth, and yet there's not one reference to the fact that he ever fasted at all. Now isn't that strange when you think about it, you see? In fact, you know, when you look at Jesus' teaching, you come to rather an interesting conclusion about this, and it's only if you don't take this at face value that you find trouble with it. Let's go to Mark chapter 2 and see something quite surprising. I'm sorry to lay it on the line like this, but we'll get the balance in just a moment. And by the way, those of you who are lazy and self-indulgent, don't smile too broadly at this moment. <laughs> I haven't finished yet. In Mark chapter 2, all right, I'm going to read from verse 18 to verse 22. Now, this is important. Verse 18. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. By the way, there's a motley crew, isn't it? I mean, the disciples of the Pharisees and of John the Baptist, they're from two different camps. One were not regenerate, the other were regenerate, but they both used to fast and they found great camaraderie in their religiosity. And so they link arms and they say, we're going to see Jesus about this fasting business. And it says in other passages, they fasted oft, both of them. So they come to Jesus, they've got a bone to pick with Jesus. And what's the bone they want to pick? They come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? I mean, surely, if they're really spiritual people, they'll be fasting all the time, won't they? I mean, surely. Do you see the religiosity behind all of this? Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast? while the bridegroom is with them. I mean, you're going to a wedding and then you suddenly announce, oh, by the way, I'm fasting today. And all the guests, oh, we're fasting. I mean, a real drab sort of wedding it's going to be. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it's a water only. <laughs> Terribly sorry about that. Will you lift your glasses in toast to the bride? Sorry, I'm on a water and food fast. Oh, dear, oh, dear. You've got problems. He says, look, when the bridegroom is there, do you fast? Of course you don't. What do you do? You feast when he's there. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Of course you can't. It's one of the major problems, you know, of being in a regular fasting scheme. That when weddings come up, what do you do? 
I mean, do you, do you sit there? You see, you've got to fast without anyone knowing you're fasting. And you go along to this wedding, what do you do? I mean, it's very difficult unless you pass it under the table to the dog or into a doggy bag or something. It's very difficult. Verse 20, and then this mysterious verse, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, then shall they fast in those days. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then this, he gives a demonstration. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth, that's unshrunken cloth, onto an old garment. Else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. You've got a hole in your old garment, you put an unshrunken piece of material in, the first wash, what's going to happen? The new piece is going to shrink and it will make a bigger tear than you had before in the old garment. What Jesus is saying is don't mix the new with the old. And by the way, I wonder whether he's thinking, look you disciples of John, what are you doing with the Pharisees? Talk about different cloth mixing. And then he goes on, and no man putteth new wine into old bottles. Well, it's wineskins, isn't it? You know the story, don't you, that wineskins used to dry out if there was no wine in them. If you put new wine in, that used to cause them to crack, and all the wine used to run away, you see. It's not a bottle, it's a wineskin here. And he says, look, you don't get an old wineskin and then pour brand new wine into it. Don't you dare do it. You'll lose everything. Else the new wine doth burst the wineskin, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And there it is. In other words, don't you dare try and mix the old with the new. And actually, taken at face value, what's he saying? Look, the old system has got to now be thought through again. Because you're in a brand new revelation now, you disciples of John. Don't you come criticizing my disciples. Right? Didn't John the Baptist himself say, I'm the friend of the bridegroom? Right? Well, that surely means that Jesus is the bridegroom. So how could his disciples fast when he's around? Now, if we ended there, we might say, all right, no fasting for the church. That's not the conclusion you get from this. Because, you see, you've got this little verse, verse 20. And this puts the balance in. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Now certainly Jesus was taken away from them, wasn't he? Right? From his trial, through the crucifixion. He was certainly taken away, and certainly they went and were in turmoil, you see. Today, however, we have to say that Jesus now lives in us. I mean, he's not with us, he's now in us. And yet I feel in verse 20, you do have the hint that there will be times when even we in New Testament revelation will fast. And we'll come on to see, you know, what um, the Bible has to say about that in just a moment. You do get little glimpses in the New Testament of fasting, don't you? Only a few, let's be honest about this, but you do have some. For example, let's go to the book of Acts, shall we? Uh, in Acts 13, you have fasting. Not the whole church, only a certain group in the church fasting. And this is interesting. Right? Verse 1, certain people are named. Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, that was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. 
Now there's a reference to fasting. The Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they have fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now here was a small group of men who sought God, received a message from God. They knew God was appointing two people. They fasted and prayed for them, and then they sent them off. Now there is some fasting. But it was not the whole church here. It's just a small group. In Acts 14, we have another little reference, and again, not the whole church. Verse 23, And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And here, of course, are Saul, or Paul, and Barnabas actually doing this. They prayed and fasted, and then anointed these elders. But the church generally, not at all. Rather interesting, that. Certainly in the King James, in Paul's teaching, there are two references to fasting, which I don't think refer to fasting at all. And if you've got a, a, a modern translation, it won't have the word fasting mentioned. We'll see these in passing in uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 6. And if you've got an NIV, you're going to have trouble finding this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 5, right, we find in the King James Version the word fastings, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, in watchings, in fastings. But actually it should be, I think, the word hunger. And I think the modern translation has it. For what he's talking about here, some of the things he had to go through as part of his ministry. You notice if you go higher up, you see verse 4. But in all these things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in hungerings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, and so it goes on. And here what he's saying is, look, the, the passage we've had is, has been pretty rough. And there have been times when we've been ministering so long, we haven't had a chance to stop, even for food. Some places we've been to, they haven't given us any food either. I don't think that's an instruction on fasting. Neither is 2 Corinthians 11, which is often quoted. 2 Corinthians 11, 27. It's the same sort of thing. In fact, could I read from verse 23? the sort of thing that Paul went through. I do wish some of the ultra-faith teachers would read this passage more often. For the way they suggest the Christian life goes is all easy, all glorious. If you're in God's will, it's boom, 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 everything just opens. Well, Paul must have been in the wrong revelation. That's all I can say. This is what they suffered. Verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, been whipped so often, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. I like that. I, I know that Paul was resurrected from the dead many times. You know, like Lazarus. Lazarus once, Paul was in death oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one, thrice was I beaten with rods, you wouldn't sell many books. You know how to be a real man of faith. This is it. What you're likely to go through if you're a true man of God. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. Oh, but hold on. If you're in God's will, everything goes smooth. Hmm, that's funny. 
a night and a day I've been in the deep. That's fascinating, isn't it? Night and a day in the deep. wonder what he meant. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, I know the feeling, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often. And I think that means without food, actually food removed from him in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Not only do I have all these things, I've got to look after the churches as well. And that's, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back, he says, you see, with all of this. And so, you see, the references to fasting are not many. What is the rule? Now, one day I was praying before the Lord, and I said, Lord, I know at times I feel that I want to fast, but how do I know if it's my religious nature doing this? And the Lord took me to the passage we read in Mark 2, and he said, the rule is this, when you feel the bridegroom isn't there, fast. When you feel he is there, don't fast. I like a rule of thumb like that. Do you remember when I spoke on guidance, I said, it's often the peace we feel inside that causes us to know we're moving right. Here, it's the presence of the bridegroom, I think, that shows us whether we should fast or not. Do you know the early church lived in such a revelation of the resurrected Christ, they never fasted. You see? I mean, the resurrection was so powerful to them. They were thinking all the time of the glorious king that they had. They lived and moved in such a revelation, they saw miracles on every side. How do you fast? When you're in the midst of that, of course you don't fast. However, the implication is there would be times when it would seem as if the bridegroom wasn't there. I know times in my own life when, you know, for some reason Jesus seems distant. Times he's so close. Every time you pray, you just feel he's there, sitting next to you. As you're traveling, as you're walking, you know Jesus is holding your hand. But there are times, aren't there, in all of our lives, when for some reason the heavens are as brass and we can't get through to the Lord. I think it's at such a time that fasting is permissible. The bridegroom doesn't seem to be around. There's no joy of a wedding pending in your heart. At that time, it's good to fast, I think. I think fasting gradually increased as church history went on and as the resurrection seemed to fade, you see. I think that's a good rule of thumb. Similarly, I think if you see in your own self that the flesh is dominant and the flesh is so loud that Jesus seems to be pushed away, I think it's a good thing to fast at that time. Fasting, you see, is totally contrary to the natural man, isn't it? Our bodies say, no, we don't want to fast. The world never fasts. I mean, do you ever hear of the world fasting? Except, of course, on the diet to make them look more beautiful. They certainly don't fast for anyone else or fast for God, you see. And everything within us says, oh, I want to be satisfied. I think sometimes to afflict your soul is a good thing. It brings your soul under control and means that your soul doesn't control you anymore you see, so that your will actually can be exerted fully and not your, your flesh dominating you all the time. I think that's a good reason for fasting. I also feel that if you see a situation where it seems as if Jesus isn't fully in control, now he always is, 
But you look at it and you think it seems chaotic, this. I think that's a good reason to fast as well, to bring the bridegroom into the situation. These are little rule, it's a little rule of thumb that can be generally applied. But beware lest the religious side take over and you start doing it to feel more spiritual, right? To impress God or your fellow man. You just beware of that. There, I think, is the general rule in all of this, all right? If you feel the bridegroom's there, don't you dare fast. Rejoice. Hallelujah. If he is slightly distant, then is the time to fast. Now, I'm assuming, of course, in all of our lives, there will be time when we will want to fast. All right, having said that, let's go on to the mechanics of fasting. Can we have a look at, if you are going to fast, how do you fast, when do you fast, and look at things like that? All right, the word fast itself comes from two Greek words, the word no and the word to eat. No eat, okay? And fast is mainly associated with food, and it will have to be with food that I have to deal today. But can I give you a revelation that I've got about my own personal life? I believe fasting can be applied in many areas, even though in the Bible it's food that's mainly in sight. I would say this, whenever you give up the right to something legitimate, you're fasting. In other words, you have a right to do this, you have a right to do that, it's no sin to do this, but you decide not to do it, at that point, you're fasting. I'll give you an example. This evening, you have decided, instead of following up the budget and working out how it's going to change your life, <laughs> you have decided to give up an evening to come aside for the Lord. Now, you see, you have a legitimate right to be with your family. In a sense, therefore, you're fasting tonight. And isn't it lovely? You've probably never thought of that before, but God counts it as a fast. And God will bless you for doing that. I certainly have a right this evening to be with my family. I mean, I've been away for a whole week. I missed the elders' meeting last night, right? My first evening home. I do have a right, I think, to another evening, don't you? To be with my family. But they and I have agreed that it's right that I come tonight, and I'm delighted to do so. That's a fast, as far as I'm concerned. I'm giving up that which is absolutely legitimate. For the sake of the Lord, it's a fast. I would say all giving to the Lord of your money is a fast, for example. Have you thought about that? You have a legitimate right to have this pound to spend it, but you've decided to give that pound to someone else. You're fasting. It's self-denial in a certain way. You see? I think if uh, you decide, for the sake of the body, not to get on your high horse and blow your own trumpet and claim your rights and everything, you're fasting. Everything within you says, I want my rights, and I want them to know I'm right. If you say, no, I'm not, I'm going to deny myself and hug the cross to me, I think you're fasting. You see? There are many, many ways. One of the obvious references to fasting is in the sexual realm. I wonder whether you've ever thought of this, right? Uh, can we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we really do have a verse about fasting? And here, it's sexual fasting. And for those of you who are single, this is quite a revelation to get, right? That you're at, your celibacy is actually a fast unto the Lord for the time of your single status. Verse 5, it's talking about husband and wife relationship here. And it says, defraud ye not... 
one the other. Don't steal from one another. You have a right to sexuality. I'm not going to go through all this again. I've done it on the sexuality tapes. So please listen to those if you're in doubt about this. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. Isn't that interesting? That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now do you see that? In other words, in a marriage relationship, it might be that for a certain number of days you decide that you will not have any sexual activity for the sake of the Lord, and instead you will devote yourselves to prayer, right, and to the Lord in that particular situation. That's an interesting little thing, isn't it? All right? I think there are many areas that you can apply this principle, and do it in faith as unto the Lord, and God will mightily bless you. All right. However, fasting generally is in the realm of food. So it's with food now that we have to continue our studies, with food in mind. First of all, can I say this? There are three basic types of fast as far as food is concerned. One, there is a total fast. Now be very careful with this one. A total fast says that not only do you stop all food intake, but you don't have water either. So you go without food and you go without water and you have absolutely nothing for a certain period. Now, it's dangerous, so be very careful. Most of us have actually too much fat around, don't we? We have plenty of food. We can go without food for quite a large number of days. You cannot go without water for very long. So be very careful if you're doing this, won't you? What is it, three days that is the maximum? Uh, without water. Be very careful and always make sure you're with other people when you're indulging in a fast like this. Don't try and do it by yourself. It is important that you have someone who is there to keep an eye on you. All right? An example of this is in Acts 9, right, and verse 9, where we have uh, Paul's conversion. And, of course, he was converted on the road to Damascus. I've just been reading this with my children tonight. And uh, he was struck blind. They led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And verse 9, and he was three days without sight and neither did eat nor drink. And I don't blame him after what had actually happened to him. Now that is a total fast. Secondly, you have what I call a normal fast. And here you keep drinking water, but you give up all food. That includes liquid food. In other words, you don't uh, have... Ovaltine at night, um, you don't have fruit juice, you don't have anything like that. There's no actual food intake at all, although water um, is something that you do have. This was the sort of fast Jesus had, as far as we know. You see, he was unhungered, but he wasn't thirsty at all. So he, he drank water, and that's perfectly legitimate. The third type of fast is what I call a partial fast, in which you actually give up a few things. Right? You don't give up all food, but you give up certain types of food. Okay? And this is a very useful one for those of us who have jobs that take an awful lot of energy. When I was a teacher, for example, I used to fast fairly frequently, but usually the normal type of fasting was done in the holidays. I found I really couldn't teach while on the fast. I just couldn't. And so what I did, I went on a partial fast. What I used to do is have my Weetabix in the morning, of course, which provided a third of my daily intake of vitamins or whatever. 
and that was normal. I used to have a cup of tea at lunchtime, and then I used to have just scrambled eggs or something like that in the evening. And I found that got me through for the number of days, you see. And perhaps that's the sort of fast you will go to yourselves. Do you remember in Daniel 10, verse 3, we saw that. He gave up all the pleasant meat and the sweet bread. He just stuck to basic stuff. Um, Again, when he was first taken into Babylon, he said, look, I only want to be on vegetables. It's a very useful sort of thing if you've got an arduous job, right? And uh, you really can't face a full fast. That's a good thing to actually do. So there are three types of fasts, and and all three are quite legitimate. So feel free to do any of those. Uh, For example, to give up um, all puddings is a good thing. That's a partial fast. Um, You know, all potatoes or something like that. That's a partial fast. But you've got to... The potato farmers here are nodding their heads saying, no, don't do that. No, we'll still buy them for others, but, uh, (laughs) but don't eat them yourselves. You see, that's the sort of thing. Again, beware, lest your real motive is dieting instead of fasting. And do get your motive clear on that. I should also warn you that if you do it with the wrong motive, you'll find you'll put on more weight after the fast than before it. I do warn you about God won't let you get away with it. Just tell you that. Often, prayer goes together with fasting, doesn't it? Not always, by the way. In Esther, they proclaimed a fast. As far as we know, they didn't pray. I'm sure they did, but uh, there's no emphasis on that. But often prayer does go with fasting, and it seems to increase the power of prayer. Now, to find verses on this is not as easy as you might think. Certainly the one we've just read is a verse, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Look, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. They go hand in hand there. And I think time is involved here. You see, you spend the time that you would be using for sexuality, you use it instead to pray together. You see, that's the sort of thing that is in mind here. Uh, Mark 9 is a verse that the King James has. If you, again, if you've got a modern version, you probably won't have this. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 29, which is similar to Matthew 17, 21, look what it says. He said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer. That's what you've got in the NIV. And fasting in the King James Version. And the reason in the modern versions they don't put in the little words and fasting is because they think it was added afterwards, you see. Similarly, in Matthew 17, 21, if you've got a modern translation, you won't have that verse at all because they think it was added later on. Well, even if it has been added, you can see the thought in the mind of the person who added it, that fasting and prayer go hand in hand. I think there is definite spiritual energy released through fasting, although again I think it might just be as simple as this, that the time you spent shopping, the time you spent preparing the meal, the time you spent cooking and the time you spent eating is then given to prayer. What you mustn't do is waste that time. You see? And it's difficult to do this when you've got children, isn't it? And when you've got to prepare a meal for them anyway. You see? Well, it might just be as easy as that. So that's how we fast. How long do we fast is another issue. And everyone seems to think the longer the better. You don't find that in the Bible at all, right? All fasting is good. And the tragedy is the longer it goes on, the more you can indulge your flesh. You know, you meet the people say, oh, have you fasted? Oh, yes, I've done my share. 
<laughs> oh, what's your longest fast? Well, well, I've done 15 days, actually. Oh, I wish I could do I've only done the five day. The moment you start having a conversation like that, you're wrong, you see. It's not length of time, actually, that counts. It's whether God's called you to do the length of time that you're actually doing. In the Bible, for example, there are fasts which lasted from sunrise to sunset. Did you know that? We won't read them. Judges 20, 26, for your notes. 1 Samuel 14, 24. Right? 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening. Fast. And God finds that acceptable. Isn't that wonderful? Next, you have, of course, a seven-day fast. All right? That was the fast that the people of Jabesh-Gilead did for Saul. 1 Samuel 31, 13. A three-week fast we saw in Daniel 10, 3. He was on a fast, partial fast, for three weeks. Quite acceptable. Next, a 40-day fast is also named in the Bible. And of course, everyone's aiming for a 40-day fast. Meet someone who's done the 40-day fast. This is most impressive. Of course, we find it impressive because we think, could I do that? Now, be careful. In the Bible, the people who did the 40-day fast were these. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. That's pretty illustrious company, isn't it? <laughs> and you want to add and Sam Bloggs as well. And with all three of those people, there were extenuating circumstances, if that's the right word. For example, Moses was in the glory of the Lord for 40 days. His face shone so much, they had to put a curtain over it. Now, I would think, you know, if I was in the glory of the Lord like that, I wouldn't want to eat it. You don't say, excuse me, Lord, I must have a wimpy in the middle of this. Be ridiculous. You'd be so captivated. Who would want to eat with the glory of the Lord like that? If I was in the glory of the Lord, 40 days, it would be simple to do it. Elijah fasted 40 days, but it says that it was after he'd indulged in eating some angels' cooking. The angels came and fed him. Now, your wife might be a good cook. <laughs> and, she, and she might be an angel. Right? She's not. She's higher than the angels. But I assure you, her cooking won't have the same effect as that angel's cooking. And after it, he could last 40 days. Jesus also fasted 40 days, and he was hungry, but he was led by the Spirit to do it. Make sure it's God that's motivating you. Otherwise, it's just religiosity again. And at the end, God might say, well, that's been fine for you. I haven't enjoyed that fast. <laughs> I haven't heard the fast even, he might actually say. Just beware, you see. The small fasts are just as good. And don't you decry them in any way, you see. That's, that's what I would say. Say you want to fast then, right? And actually I'm going to fast a bit tonight because this Bible study isn't as long as I normally give. Isn't that, aren't I kind to you, you see? I want to give you now, just to complete the Bible study, some hints for those of you who may want to fast. All right? Remember the principle. If the bridegroom isn't there, fast. That's a good rule of thumb. So say you find the need for fasting. Well, I can give you four things that I think are hints. One I've emphasized a lot. I'll end this list with that. First of all, start with short fasts or partial fasts. What is this tendency within us to always want to raise the dead before we turn water into wine? 
Isn't it funny? I know married couples, and they, they haven't been praying together, and so they say, yes, we really must start. And what they mean an hour together. Since when? Why can't you just have five minutes to begin with? Why do you have to have a whole hour? And so many of them, you see, they try and have a whole hour. It lasts for two days only, and after that, they give up. Oh, I just can't handle it. It'd be much better, you know, if they did five minutes every day, and then build it up to ten minutes every day, and then quarter of an hour every day. Don't be religious about this. If you're beginning to fast, why don't you try a six in the morning to six in the evening? Right? And then try not to eat too much after it's over. <laughs> Unlike the Muslims that I once shared a hall of residence with, who used to have a big fry-up before the sun came up, and a big fry-up once it was down, and the smell of all this food just above vape. It was for Ramadan. Oh. And we used to wake up with this awful smell. Those of you college students, do you remember? It was horrible, you see. Don't. If you're going to do a day fast, why don't you do it a natty way? Most of us, you see, start before we go to bed in the evening. And we have our last bowl of Weetabix or whatever. We go to bed, 11 o'clock. I wish I could see my bed at 11 o'clock, I must say. But 11 o'clock, and then we fast all the next day, and we wait till breakfast the following morning. Now, actually, that's a day and a half, or a day and a quarter. I think it's much simpler, you know, to start at 8 o'clock in the evening and go to 8 o'clock the following evening. Or do you think that's cheating? That's not cheating, that's your religiosity coming out. Or six o'clock to six o'clock. So you have tea, and your next meal then is a bowl of soup and some bread at eight o'clock the next day. Why not? You see? It's better to do it that way than to get utterly defeated. Oh no, it's got to be a ten-day fast straight in with us. It doesn't have to be. Take it easy, you see? And that, a, a thing under this heading, uh, a thing I find very useful is this. Why don't you just say, I won't have any puddings? That's a good partial fast. Or why don't you say, I will never eat as much as I can eat? That is a partial fast. <laughs> Still eat a lot, but not so much. Why don't you say, I won't have any second helpings? As a fast before the Lord. All these things are lovely. If you're a beginner, why don't you try this? I think it's very useful to do this. And it is perfectly acceptable to God. Perfectly acceptable. All right. Secondly, if, however, you want to fast longer, I think you've got to be careful about this. And the important thing is this, you've got to go into the fast slowly. Don't fill yourself up with roast beef and three veg and four puddings and cheese and biscuits and say, right, I'm ready for the winter. Don't do that. I think it's much better to start cutting down because the stomach shrinks, you see, and as it shrinks, it actually doesn't want so much food. And if you do that, you're going to be ever so hungry for the next few days. Much better to break it in slowly over a week and begin cutting down till you end just by being on fruit juice or fruit generally. And then you gradually go on to water only, for example. Okay? Again, with a fast like that, say you fasted for 10 days or something like this, you must then come out of it slowly as well. Don't make the mistake I did when I went on my first five-day fast. I was so, I mean, I dreamt about food. And on day three, I'd worked it out, you see, that'd be jolly nice. I'd go to church on Sunday morning, and then I booked up at a hotel to go and have a slap-up meal afterwards. Three courses and a lot. You see, I was dying for that church service to be over. 
And uh, I went along to church. I rushed out of the church straight to the hotel. I tucked my napkin in and I was ready for anything. Except that after the bowl of soup, I couldn't eat anymore. And the next course was served up and I thought, I'm absolutely full. I just couldn't do it. Come out of the fast slowly as well. I would say that that is important. The third thing is this. Very often people find, this is a hint in fasting, very often people find that they develop a headache after the second or third day of fasting. Some people say that's due to poisons in the body. I think it's just as likely to be withdrawal symptoms from tea and coffee. I know certainly when I've travelled without tea and coffee, I've developed exactly the same headache. I think therefore a good thing if you're going on a fast is to gradually cut down on tea and coffee before you actually get into the main fast anyway. You might find it's easier. And by the way, even if you get the headache, you will get through it. Drink plenty of water and you'll get through that headache. And then you become so light-headed. It's wonderful. I mean, it, it's a fantastic feeling. It really is. I've reached a place in one of my fasts where I thought, food, I couldn't face it. I never want to eat again. I feel as if it had, you know, um, damage, it would damage me in some way. You see, it was, it was tremendous, really. I changed my mind a few days later. But, um, you know. So that's another hint about that. The fourth thing I would emphasize is this. As you're fasting, beware pharisaicalism. And it's so easy to drop hints. Uh, well, I, actually, I'm fasting. Moment. Oh. oh, yes. Jesus said about the Pharisees, don't let any, he said to them, don't let any man know when you're fasting. It's terribly easy, isn't it? Oh, well, I'm fasting. And you often find, you know, some people who fast a lot, they look down at everyone else. The trouble with this fellowship is they should be fasting more. <laughs> and they look down their noses at everyone. That's pharisaicalism. You see, it's religiosity. And I think they're not in faith at that particular point, you see. Beware of pharisaicalism. You've got to get the attitude right before the Lord. All right, let's just read Zechariah 7. And this tells us the right attitude that we ought to have. And then I want one last verse, and we'll complete for the evening. Zechariah chapter 7, and verse 4. And here he's speaking about the fasts again. Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? He said, What's this fast anything to do with me that you indulge yourself in? It was your religious exercise. And when you did eat and when you did drink, did, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities thereof round about her when men inhabited the south and the plain? If you're going to fast, beloved, do it as unto the Lord. If you're going to feast, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. It's the motive that counts in all of this. Now some of you must start fasting. Some of you must check again your religiosity and exactly whether you've got it right before the Lord. My wife and I have opposite tendencies. Mine is to feast. Hers is to fast. 
She has to correct one way, I have to correct the other way, just a bit. Whatever way you've got to be corrected, be corrected. But whatever you do, don't you go swaggering around as if what you are doing is correct. In all of these things, it's the individual hearing from God that really counts. I want to say one last thing. Today's budget day, March 1986. I had to think about the year there. March 1986. Isn't it interesting in the Old Testament when economic disaster was threatening or when there was pestilence in the land, they knew that God was the one who had to be consulted. They turned to God. In the book of Joel, a major uh, plague of locusts is described in great detail. Do you know their answer to a plague of locusts? They called upon the Lord. The great tragedy of our day is this, that instead of calling upon the Lord for those famine-ridden areas, we immediately call upon humanity. I think it's wrong. I would love it if our politicians had announced today, we're doing all of these measures, we have a major problem with unemployment, we are proclaiming a day of prayer and of fasting in the whole nation. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the money that we saved in food could actually be donated to the establishment of new factories or something like that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But the prayer calling upon the name of the Lord, it would do more for our unemployment problem than anything the government could do. We could do more for Ethiopia by calling a national day of prayer than even by providing in the way that we've provided for them. We could do more for India. We could do more for all of the war-ridden areas by actually calling a national fast in our country. This is what I want to see. And do you know, I won't be satisfied until we have godly MPs who stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, let us fast and pray. Oh, that the Queen would call a day of prayer and fasting in this land. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't we all join in? Amen, we would. So let's just end in uh, Joel... Daniel, Hosea, Joel, chapter 2, and I think this is perfectly bona fide. This is absolutely correct. If your nation is suffering, call a day of fasting. If your family is suffering, call for a family fast. When did you last fast about your problems, I wonder? When did you last seek the Lord solidly in prayer and in fasting about the particular problem? How quick we are to seek for ministry or to seek for this man of God and how slow we are to seek the face of God himself. It's time we put God absolutely back in the centre in all of these things. Before we read this, have I ever told you of my minister friend who had a woman knocked at his door and she said, I won't name him, brother, I'm desperate. I'm desperate to get sorted out with the Lord. I'm desperate. He said, really desperate. I'm desperate. He said, very well. He said, we have a room at the back of our house. You go up there and we'll see you in three days. She said, what do you mean? I'm desperate. He said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I want ministry. He said, well, if you're desperate, you'll go and pray and fast for three days up in the room at the back of the house and then I'll minister to you. She wasn't that desperate. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? Yeah? Want to bother this minister or that person or this? Call upon, oh, I've got a problem. I'll call upon. What about getting into your closet before God first? 
Wouldn't it be transform people? And wouldn't it be wonderful when they come and say, the Lord has made me radiant. The Lord and the Lord alone has done it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Perhaps you need to sound this in your own life. Look at this. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face towards the east sea, his hinder part towards the utmost sea, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savour shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Do not be afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. He hath given you the former rain moderately. He will cause you to, to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat. The fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. And so it goes on. You will eat in plenty. Be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God. And verse 27. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. It's time we did it. Individually and nationally. May the Lord take this word and bless you through it. Praise God. You'll notice... You have a personal responsibility to seek the Lord as to how often and when you should fast. Father, I thank you so much for this study tonight on fasting. I ask you to help us get the balance, Lord. We don't want to be self-indulgent. We don't want to be religious. But Father, we want your will to be done in our lives. Oh Father, how can we expect our nation to come back to you if we are not fully back with you? Just speak to us, Lord, and may we do what you say. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Praise God.